Well, please look with me again at Luke chapter 8 and verse 15. I'll read that verse again. Luke 8 and verse 15. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. The ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Well, I want to look with you this morning at this parable, which is undoubtedly familiar to you. Um, and a, a, a parable that's very close to my heart, I suppose. I always find it a very difficult thing um, to, when I'm not in my own congregation, to decide, well, what will I preach on? My wife knows I could take weeks deciding what will I preach on. When I'm in my own congregation, well, I can, I can develop it over a period of time and sort of go somewhere. But I labour sometimes over what to preach on. And I certainly don't think I always get it right. I look back at it and I think I should have preached on something else. That one didn't, it wasn't, didn't seem to me fitted for the occasion. We know the Lord uses his word uh, however it comes. Um, but... I thought I would preach on this parable. And one of the reasons for that, when I was in the throes of, well, what will I preach on? Um, well, I thought I would preach on this parable because I think this is actually the most important of all the parables. If it's wise to say such a thing, I think this is the most important of all the parables. How do we know it's important? Well, there's a few, I sort of want to take an overview of it to begin with and consider that with you. I, I suppose I, I would love it to sink in for you and for everyone just how important this parable is. I think our Lord wanted it to sink in. How do we know that this is an important parable? Well, all the parables are important, but perhaps the most important of the parables. Well, there's a word that's used in this chapter and it was in sort of a, a, an allusion to Psalm 78 which we just sung you, you can see it there in verse 10 when the disciples asked him what does this parable mean Jesus said to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God he used this word mysteries and that's a, a sort of a, a key word in the New Testament, beginning here, this word mysteries, or a mystery, I suppose to us, we, when we hear the word mystery, the way we normally use it, we think of it as, well, something I don't understand, probably something I can't understand. But when our Lord uses this, and we see it in the way the apostles use the word as well, it means something that couldn't have been known before but now can be known there's a, there's a revelation it was a mystery but it's not now at least 
not for those who hear and understand. Our Lord, if you're familiar with Matthew's Gospel, you know, we, we don't always agree with the red letters in the Bible, but sometimes if you just, if you've got a red letter Bible and you just flip through, which I think I used to do when I was a child, maybe not listening well enough in church, I would look for the biggest sections of red words, unbroken. And you can find some big blocks of red letters, that is, big blocks of teaching of our Lord Jesus, particularly in Matthew's Gospel, you've got the Sermon on the Mount. And there's another big block, um, Matthew 24 and 25, where our Lord talked about the, the end of the age. He was asked about it by his disciples, and you've got a big block of teaching there. Well, there's another block of teaching comes in between. It's not quite so long. Matthew chapter 13. And we get a whole series of parables. And they're called the parables of the kingdom or the, the mysteries of the kingdom. This is one of these parables. Our Lord began to give a revelation of new things. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. In Ephesians chapter 3, which we read in verse 5, verses 3 to 5, it says, the apostle refers to the mystery which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit <laughs> to his holy apostles and prophets. The psalm that we just sung talks about, I will open my mouth in parables, I will declare dark sayings of mysteries, things hidden. And then it says, the same which our fathers heard and known. I, I do find that a difficult uh, verse, but it almost seems to be saying, well, there's something, there's something new and there's something different, but it's, there's something the same as well. You know, there was information given in the Old Testament. There was things that made them anticipate something more, but they couldn't quite understand what it was. They didn't have enough information and they wanted more information. In fact, in Matthew's account of this parable, uh, he tells us um, what Jesus said to his disciples when they asked about this parable. He said to them, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and they did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. They longed to hear it, but they didn't hear it. And then Jesus said, Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. It's all folk centers around this parable and, and others that connect with it, of course. It's a revelation of something new. Things previously hidden in the plan of God. It was still God's plan. He hasn't changed his plan there's not multiple plans of God and some of them work, didn't work so he developed another one as some people almost seem to think. They fail almost like there was a failure in some dispensation so he came up with another idea. It's not like that. This was always the plan of God. He knew it from the very beginning. The revelation, the full revelation that we have. So you get this sort of key word mystery. Something revealed, something that people longed for. 
And this parable is a particular key because the word there was, was plural in, in, in Luke's gospel. Actually, Mark puts it singular, the mystery. But Matthew and Luke call it the mysteries. That means there's many things that Jesus was going to reveal in this New Testament age. But this parable seems to be a particular key. In some way, it just helps set the context for us to understand more that the other things fit in. Why do I say it's a particular key? Well, this parable, of all the ones that you could say are the parables of the kingdom, this parable is the one that's repeated almost word for word, three times. You can go and read Matthew chapter 13 and you'll find seven parables. Well, there's an eighth one as well. But you can find seven parables there. And then you go to Mark's account and, mm, I don't know, Mark has maybe only two of them. And then he has a different one. And Luke, he, he, he's only got one of them. And then he's got some sort of different ones. But this is the one that's repeated three times. That repetition is a really important tool in the way that God brings his word to us. If something is repeated, and, you know, it's like when we tell our children, well, do, do such and such, and then we tell them again, do such and such, and oh, I certainly have memories of the things my mother said to me when I was growing up, the things that she just kept on saying, probably because I wasn't quite doing them, and then it does sink in eventually. It, it does have an effect, just repetition, well, this parable is repeated three times, and Jesus actually said in Mark's Gospel, I'm, I'm sorry that I'm sort of dotting between some of these accounts, but uh, I would almost have liked to have read them all to compare and contrast, but time, it wouldn't probably have been the most sensible thing to do. But in Mark's Gospel, in his account of this, when the disciples asked him about the parable, Mark chapter 4 and verse 13, he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? I've got more parables to tell you. If you don't understand this one, how are you going to understand all the other ones? There's a sort of interpretive key that this parable gives. And I believe it's this. That this parable, it... it gives us a, a, an overview or it describes this time in which we live. This, I sometimes call the gospel age. It's not, a, it's not a phrase that comes from the Bible. I don't know where I got it from, but I often call it this gospel age. We're in the age when the gospel is going out. That's what's happening. That's the, that's the purpose of this age. It's the age when the word goes out. You know, there was a previous age when I suppose it was the age of conquest, maybe you could say. Joshua had to go in and possess the promised land. That was the duty given to them. Drive out the, the, the Canaanites. Take possession of the land. That's, that's what God, that was God's purpose for them in that age. But we're not in an age of conquest. This gives an overview of this age. Obviously, there's so much that it doesn't describe. It doesn't describe all the movements of world history. 
You're not going to know what's going to happen next week by reading this parable or understanding it. It doesn't describe the advance of nations, the development of technologies, the rise and fall of empires, or whatever else that has gone on that some people think, well, that's what's happened in this time. That's how I would summarize the last 2,000 years. It gives an overview of God's primary purpose for this age. The word is preached. And people are called to hear. That's the primary purpose of this age. Christ is sowing his word throughout the world. And it's an indiscriminate sowing of his word. You know, the old word broadcasting. We, we talk about broadcasting and we immediately think of things going up on YouTube or on the TV or something like that. It's all very technological. But it comes from, of course, when they threw out seed out of their, out of their basket and they just spread it. And they just, they just spread it wherever as they walked through the, the field. And, you know, when you read about a field... Um, in the Bible, I don't think there were fields like, certainly not like the fields you see in some parts of Australia. As far as the eye can see, it's just a big flat field. Or even like the fields you see around here where it's all nicely set apart, it's been de-stoned, it's been fenced. Anything you plant in there is going to grow. But that wasn't really like the fields that were around Jerusalem. There was path and there was stone and there was rocky ground. and There was soil in there too, of course. And the, the, the seed is just spread everywhere. You know, we have some amazing technology, precision sores. I mean, they're amazing. Just the way it, it, it measures out the seed in these huge fields. And it's just precision sowing just puts the seed exactly where it wants the seed to grow and the farmer's pretty much guaranteed that seed's going to grow pretty much. That's not what this parable describes. That's not actually this gospel age. You know, there's sometimes that... I don't want to get sidetracked on things, but sometimes there's that sort of question people say, well, who should you preach to? God only wants his word to go to the elect. Some people seem to say. And they'll only almost preach to the elect. But that would be like precision sowing. You know, every seed goes right where you want it to go. Or right where it's going to bear fruit. But that's not the age that Christ describes. He describes the word going out. Everywhere, And some of those seeds, some of that seed is not going to come to fruition. Paul in Colossians says, This word which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. The word comes and it does bear fruit. But it doesn't bear fruit in everyone. This parable is important because it, I think we're going to be disillusioned if we don't let it sink in what this age is all about. 
it's it, there's a natural sort of almost disillusionment that we feel when the church seems small. Why is it small? Because we know that God is powerful. And we know that his word is powerful. And we know that his spirit is at work. And why is the church small? And why are the nations going, like our nation, this nation, why is it morally going back and not forward? When the word of God is in this nation, it's been in this nation for a long time. Why? It's heartbreaking. It's enough to make us disillusioned if we don't, I suppose, understand this parable. I'm not saying we shouldn't be sad about it. Jesus did say, blessed are those who mourn. I think we should be a mourning people, even though we are a joyful people, but we should be a realistic people as well. Christ is sowing his word. And there are some preachers, I mean, we, we know what happened in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, what a long ministry he had from when he was young. And what little fruit he seemed to see from his ministry. Jerusalem didn't get better. It just got worse. He was, well, they call him the weeping prophet, of course, don't they? And he was miserable at points. Really miserable. He's one of the ones that asked the Lord, take me away. Because he wasn't seeing it working. But that was what the Lord had for him. And in this age, well... There's lots of stories of missionaries who went places and they didn't seem to have any benefit at all. And what, are, what, are, what are we going to say about those missionaries? Are we going to say, well, they weren't good enough preachers. They weren't doing it right. They didn't have enough techniques. You know, we need to develop their techniques. We, we've kind of become a little bit like that in general evangelicalism. A little bit about techniques. As if, as if our purpose in this world is to fill our churches. As if our purpose in this world is to find ways of getting people in. Well, that's not what is described here. That's not the burden that God has laid on his preachers or his church. And it, it, it you know, in some ways there's something almost right about it. Almost and yet, you know, there's a sort of a parting of the ways there. If our focus becomes just on what's going to get people in, we're going to do things that aren't just the preaching of the word. And as Paul said to the, well, when Paul went to Corinth, he, you know, I think, I think Paul was a, he was a very good orator. And some people say he wasn't because he says to the Corinthians uh, that his, his speech was just simple when he went among them. He didn't, he didn't use flowery oratory. I think he deliberately did that because he knew the Corinthians love oratory. If you want to fill a church in Corinth, you use amazing oratory. They love it. They'll come in. And the apostle said, I'm not going to do that. I want it to be the word. I want to know that the word is the thing making the difference here. Somebody once said to me, what you win them by is what you win them to. Whatever it is, you use to get people in, you're, you're, you're going to have to keep 
doing that, to keep them in, because that's what they've come for. But Jesus describes here the sad task, almost, look, I don't want to make it sound miserable, it's a, it's a glorious task, but there's something almost sad about it, just spreading the word, and some of it is not going to make any difference. You know, there's these different soils, and some just doesn't, it, it goes nowhere. I am, uh, I, you, you know that sound that says, that man who bearing precious seed and going forth doth mourn, yet doubtless uh, bringing back his sheaves rejoicing shall return. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit like that. I, I love the idea of gardening. Uh, I've had lots of plans, I've drawn them out. I've never made them work. Never had the energy really. Uh, or the time, or whatever, or the, even the knowledge to make it work. Um, but when I plant a seed, I, I, I look at the seed. I mean, everyone's different. Some people look at the seed and they just see potential. I look at the seed and it's, it's inert. It doesn't look like it can do anything. And I do over-the-top preparation of my soil, or whatever. I, think, I really, really need to make this right. I put the seed in and I think it's I still think it's probably not going to grow I mean it's astonishing that it does grow how does that even happen from a seed it does look like a it's inert it looks like it can't do anything that's why the man was mourning when he put out his seed because well he's using up all his precious seed and suppose doesn't really know what's going to come of it I think we live at a time when in, in many ways in many ways the cause of the gospel is weak in many ways and the church is weak and it's, that's the time we live in and what are we going to think about that? mourn? yes lose heart? believe that we've utterly failed? No. The word just keeps going out. That's the duty that's laid upon us. And God, as his word goes out, this parable really tells us, the word seeks out. The word itself, indiscriminately broadcast, it seeks out those of, they're described here in verse 15, with a noble and good heart. The word itself seeks them out. You know, the, the seed is powerful. The power is in the seed. The word of God is powerful. You know, the, the seed that fell on the rocky ground or on the path and then got eaten up or on the rocky ground and it came to nothing? It's exactly the same seed. It's got exactly the same power in it. There's no problem with the seed. There's no problem with the word of God. There's no problem with the foolish method if that's how the apostle describes it. I mean, either he's saying that the message seems foolish or the method, or both, seem foolish to many people. But there's no problem with it. That seed, when it falls on good soil, grows. That's what the parable reminds us of. That's what the sower broadcasting his seed knows. Some of it will fall on good soil and it will grow. And this is an age in which God is 
he is plucking people out of this world. It, it is an evil age. It is an evil world. And he's plucking people out of it. And I suppose the mystery, because God was always doing that in a way. You know, it's, it's like what John says, a new command I give to you. And yet it's an old command that we love one another. Well, there's something new about this, but there's something old about it as well. But the new thing is, Christ has sent his word through the whole world. He doesn't just send it to one nation and those that come into contact with that nation of Israel come in. He sent it to the whole world. It's come to Lewis. I know you think it's the centre of the world, but it's pretty far flung. You know, the people that lived where Jesus lived and walked, they didn't, if they knew anything about it, and they probably knew more than we think they knew, they would have thought of it as far flung. You know, out in the far reaches. And the word came here and has taken root. And we thank the Lord for that. And it's still bearing fruit among you. It's still bearing fruit. <clears throat> not bearing as much fruit as you want? Well, the, that's, that's not as in among others, among in, in Stornoway. And, well, that's not really your problem in a way. It's still bearing fruit. Is it bearing fruit in you? Let's personalise it. Because this is, well, it does get personal. There's a sort of an overview in it, but there's definitely something in this parable that puts the onus on the individual. Jesus said, after he told this parable, it says, he cried out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's the age of preaching. It's the age of the word going out. And this is the age of hearing. We have a particular duty to hear. And there's all sorts of things that stop us from hearing properly. I mean, there's all psychology behind that. And I'm not a psychologist really at all. It's just astonishing sometimes what people don't hear or and, and even you know, we, so we, we say it ourselves sometimes we say suddenly we get a sort of aha moment somebody's been telling me that for years you know the same person's been saying the same thing and I didn't have a clue what they were talking about I heard but I didn't I didn't, I didn't really stop and take time to listen and then afterwards they said well I did tell you I told you it's a little bit like that with the gospel. It's like that with me, you know, not just the, the the core saving basics of the gospel, if you want, but you know, there's there's more as well. I think it's a real problem with the church in our time. Actually, it's not just our time. I was reading a, a writing from a, a few centuries ago where they were bemoaning the same thing that people just want to. They, they, it's like let's just. Let's just go down to the to the basics. Lowest common denominator. If it's not, you know, people talk about the things that are non-essential. There's a big push. Let's just let's just bring it down to the things that are essential. Let's leave out the non-essentials. Well, you know, when Jesus said for us to hear, he wants us to hear the essentials and be saved. And then he wants to he wants more to be added. Our 
he assumes that somebody with a good and noble heart, somebody where the seed's gone in and it's bearing fruit, will want more. It says it there in verse 18, or alludes to it. Take heed how you hear, for whoever has to him more will be given, and whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken away from him. We should want to have more. The church should not be saying, let's just keep it to the basics. We should be saying, let's encourage one another to grow in all the detail, because there's a whole infrastructure that God has put around this. There's wonderful things to know. There's excellencies of God to explore. I mean, what if people took the same view about science and they just said, oh, let's just, let's just base it on the, the core things. I mean, have you, have you ever talked to somebody doing a PhD these days and asked them what's your PhD about? I, I ask people and I, switch, I, I have to switch off before they even finished the, the first sentence of what it is they're doing because it's so obscure, it's so tiny and doubtless it's important and doubtless it's going somewhere and that's the way it should be but I may say well, what's the point, just ditch that PhD I mean let's concentrate on the main things, people need fed houses need built well this would be a foolish approach to life there's, there's things to discover there's things to grow in this parable, it, it puts that onus on us. Here, get the basics for sure. Christ is a mystery as well. He, he himself is the revelation. He is the one that is saving us. The knowledge of who he is is the very basics. The acceptance of him as Lord. But he did tell his disciples afterwards, go into all the world, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. That's pretty expansive. All things. So in this age, the word is going out and it's seeking. It's, it proves, the word itself proves, which is the noble and the good heart. Now I suppose there's a lot that could be said about this because, you know, I could say to you, well, you should have a noble and a good heart. And if you're very theologically astute, you could say back to me, well, I can't have a noble and a good heart unless God gives me a noble and a good heart. And that is true. That is true. doesn't mean you don't have an obligation to have a noble and a good heart, a genuine and a sincere reception of the word. You do have an obligation for that. But by nature, our fallen sinful nature, we are not good we are dis- our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked we don't even know them the Bible tells us how can I have good and a noble heart when Paul preached in Philippi it says and it's a wonderful little verse um, it says that the Lord opened the heart of Lydia to heed the things that were spoken by the apostle the Lord opens the heart You do have an obligation to hear with a noble and a good heart, with sincerity, with earnestness, with desire. And if you look at yourself and you say, I don't really have a heart like that, well, there's a, there, you, you should want a heart like that. This is, this is about eternal, your eternal destiny. And 
Jesus did give us amazing promises. <coughs> How much more will, the, will our Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And that's a wonderful promise. If you don't have the Holy Spirit and you sincerely ask, Jesus says, He's a good Father. How much more will He give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? More than an earthly Father will give good things. So the word goes out, people hear and have an obligation to hear in a right way. And God is seeking fruit. You know when you plant a seed? You're not really, I mean, there's always, there's always this wonder of the seed growing. I mean, I can't help it because I'm such a pessimist when I plant a seed. I'm almost certainly once... Once the little things, you know, once the little things grow, once my little pack choice, we can grow pack choice where I am, or all sorts of things. Once the little pack choice gets to a certain height, I'll probably say, "Hey, mate, come look at this! Look, look, look! Look at the little pack choice. It's growing. I mean, there's something just amazing about the fact it grows. But that, that, that's not it. It's actually we want to eat it at the end. We want the fruit. We, we want something to show for it." And that's very much connected with this. And the New Testament has lots of things that speak about fruit. People bearing fruit. John's Gospel, chapter 15 especially, there's a whole chapter there about fruit. God's wanting fruit. He cuts off the branches that don't bear fruit. Verse 15 in Luke chapter 8. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it. So I'm slightly sidetracked, but you know he's contrasting this with how the seed works in other places. This person keeps it, he, he holds it, whereas the stuff that fell on the path, the birds came and took it away. That person didn't keep the word, but this person keeps the word. Um, and he bears fruit with patience, with endurance. You know, the other... Um, one of the seeds, there's no endurance. It was the, the rocky soil, not much, not much soil there. And when trouble or persecution came, that person, even though they sort of heard, even though they sort of received the word with joy, but no endurance. This world matters more. No endurance, no patience. And then, of course, there's the one that didn't bear any fruit. You know, the one that fell among thorns cares of this world how much how many people who have as far as you can tell sincerely accepted agreed that this is the way of salvation and yet the world just work money all the cares of the world all the delights of the world have crowded it out they never commit to the Lord's day they never commit to the Lord's people or if they have for a time they go away from it and they don't bear any fruit but this one keeps it and bears fruit with patience, with endurance. And what is fruit? I've absolutely no idea what the time is, by the way, because there's no clock. And I thought that was a clock, but that isn't. And I haven't got a watch, so <laughs> I am nearly there. But I do want to say something about bearing fruit, because I think sometimes this is misunderstood. Um, you know, I, 
have certainly come across many Christians and they think, they almost instinctively think that to bear fruit means you, you must be converting other people. Somehow your life must be, or what you say or what you do or what your church does must be converting other people and that's fruit. But I don't think the Bible ever describes that as fruit. I mean, when the Apostle says to the Colossians that this word is bearing fruit among you, he's talking to those who have already received the word and he's looking at their lives and he is saying, I can see that this word is changing you, the people that have received the word. You've received the word and now this powerful word is working something within you. It's transforming you. It's making a difference in you. And that may not necessarily lead to somebody else being converted because of you. It may. You're all right. It's not too bad. We can go for another. You may convert someone else. When Peter tells wives that they should be submissive to their husbands, he particularly mentions those who are married to non-believers. That you, without a word, may win your husband. That's just the, 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 the fruit of the gospel working in them, giving them humility and submission and chasteness and all the things that God delights in them. A gentle and a quiet spirit is very precious in the sight of God. That's what he says. It's very precious. Well, the husband might never notice it. He just might not. There's some brutish husbands. They're not paying attention. But it might. But that's not really the point. The point is that God is looking for the change in you. Is it bearing fruit in you? Is there constancy for example, the patience, the steadfastness. When it's difficult, when all around are abandoning old paths, true paths, I suppose there's some old ways that are, you know, they need to be reviewed, of course, but there's old paths that are true paths that everyone wants recognized and they're true and then everyone's abandoning them. What are you going to do? Well, the, the, the word bearing fruit in you we would hope it produces constancy. You're going to hold fast. How often does the Bible say, hold fast. Just keep on. And you might not win a single person with that. And everyone might still laugh at you. But that's still fruit. If you're holding fast. And joyfulness. I mean, we have a whole list, as you know, of the fruits of the Spirit. Or the fruit of of the Spirit, I suppose I should say, and it manifests itself in many ways, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He lists these things in Galatians. Joyfulness. You know, there is a joy that, uh, of the Lord in Christians. And life, this, this world, is a, it's a tough place very often. There's all sorts of things that give us knocks. And you could say, humanly speaking, good reason 
for despondency and good reason for bitterness. But, a, but the word of God is, when it's working in us, it's producing joy in the midst of trials. <coughs> Shouldn't be bitter, despondent. Peacemakers. Peace is something that's mentioned. Love, of course. Faith. Interesting in that passage in Galatians, it mentions faith. That's kind of an interesting one because don't all the Lord's people have faith? Well, they, they do. But the Bible still talks about a sort of, I have chosen my words carefully, additional kind of faith. I mean, there's saving faith. But, you know, there's people and they have saving faith. And then when we read the Bible and it tells us things and we just, oh, I, can't, I can't really put my trust in that for my particular circumstances. But faith grows. You know, from faith in God's word, it tells us things. And it just seems to be so contrary sometimes to what we think will work. But we hope and pray that the word working in us is increasingly giving us faith in God's word, in the simplicity of it, in the straightforwardness of it, in the fact that it will work, as in it's because he's worked. He, it's what he's appointed, even when it doesn't seem like it's going to work. It's easy to lose conviction and I do think that that generally is a problem of our time and of our churches <coughs> lost conviction that's why we want to boil it all down to the main things because we're less sure about the finer things than we were 20 years ago 40 years ago 100 years ago we're less sure that's, that's a bad sign that's a sign that, generally speaking, there's not fruit bearers. Look, I want to be careful in what I say or how I analyse <coughs> our age. Conviction should grow. But I suppose lots could be said about it, as I said before. Lots could be said about it, but the point really is this point I wanted to make. It's what the word is doing in you. And the word will be doing things in you. God is working in you. If you've received his word and you're holding to it steadfastly and you will see in due course, the believer does, we are meant to examine ourselves, we do look in on ourselves and there's lots that we see problems with. I always find it fascinating reading some of the Puritans and they're very holy they seem very holy people and yet the more they go on in their faith the more problems they see in themselves. You know that's even a fruit because there's more honesty, there's more analysis of their fallen sinful nature and there's more desire for Christ to change them. That's all fruit. It's what the word is doing in you. This parable I know I've sort of skimmed over it in a way 
done an overview, but it really sets the scene for what is going on around us, for how we fit into this time in which we live. It's the age of the word going out. And if the word is going out, there is this obligation to hear. If you have ears to hear, hear. Jesus almost had, there's longing in his saying when he says, let him hear. It's saving to hear the word. It's beautiful to see that word bearing fruit. It's reward, it's eternal life, and then it's storing up treasures in heaven. It's manifesting, you know, I'm ending, but Paul to the Ephesians said that the, about this age, he, he talked about the things in this age, the things that are going on, it's manifesting t- to the heavenly realms, God's purposes. You know, the angels, I presume, they don't see things as we see things. They, they see fruit in lives. They see the spiritual development. They're attuned to that. You might not quite see it, but they see it. And it is to the praise, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ whence people are bearing fruit. It is to his glory. It is for your good. It is for your salvation. Amen. Well, we'll join together in prayer. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, we thank you for our privilege to have the full revelation of the plan of God. We have this scripture which is now closed. Um, You have declared all your purposes of the things that we need to know. You have declared how you are calling people out of this evil age and you have a great purpose for them and the age that is to come and you have laid obligations upon us. We are privileged to live in a place where there has been the word of God, where it has taken root and we know there are many parts of the world where that is not the case. We thank you for our privilege and we pray Lord that you would work in our hearts we pray that you would even now open our ears to hear the main things the the saving gospel and the full counsel of God that we would grow in grace we know that we have a great need of it in this age and we appeal to you we ask it in Jesus name Amen We're going to sing as we draw to a close in Psalm 92. This is one that speaks about, um, what's it, it's called a psalm for the Sabbath day, actually. And um, there's something about the Sabbath that um, it really promotes the growth of God's people. But towards the end of the psalm, we're going to sing from verse 12 down to the end where it talks about the bearing of fruit when others are fading. But like a palm tree flourishing shall be the righteous one 
He shall like the cedar grow that is in Lebanon. Those that within, that within the house of God are planted by his grace, they shall grow up and flourish all in our God's holy place. And in old age, when others fade, they fruit still forth shall bring. They shall be fat and full of sap, and they be flourishing to show that upright is the Lord. Here's one of the, the benefits of the bearing of fruit. It shows that the Lord is upright. It declares his righteousness. He is a rock to me, and he from all unrighteousness is altogether free. So these verses, uh, Psalm 92, verse 12 to the end. <coughs>